0: The FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk. Listen to the end of this episode to hear how Novo Nordisk's employees are working to defeat diabetes. Okay, so this is where I, you know, I come for a class and I go straight into the fridge. That's right. Well,
1: so the, the way that this works is we have our instructor walk out. They explain, you know, obviously what the workout is, what to expect. It's looks
0: like a giant safe from that, a bank or something. Right. Ooh, it is a little bit chilly. It feels chillier than outside.
2: That's Hannah Kuchler, the FT's farmer and Biotech Correspondent in New York. NYC is in the middle of a boutique fitness boom. But it's also a city with deep levels of fitness inequality.
3: If you don't have either a private gym nearby or, much more importantly, a safe place to go running or to play ball with your kids, I mean, that constrains your
2: abilities to be physically active or to just go out for a run. In the Flatiron district of Manhattan, high-end studio classes have become wildly popular. It's changed the way that people work out, bringing an array of new fitness concepts and tech into the gym. There are more than 100 fitness studios in this small area, and wellness-focused businesses take up one in five ground-floor retail spaces. But for those who can't afford a $40 spin class, your zip code can play a crucial role in your health. On average, the poorest people in the US get about half as much exercise as the wealthiest, who themselves have more free time and more access to gyms. So the question is, what can the city do about this fitness inequality? How do you build a healthy city? That's the subject of this series. My name's Darren Dodd, and I'm the editor of FT Health Reports. For this podcast, I've been speaking to six FT journalists in cities around the world Copenhagen to Tokyo to Singapore, hearing from the politicians, health experts and local residents changing lives through creative interventions. Sahana, so, working out in New York, it's become much more than getting fit. It's much more of a lifestyle thing today.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of status involved with it. I think that fitness has become more important to lengthening your life. It's become a sort of a sign of control. People talk obviously a lot about self-care and people want to do it in more luxurious ways or experiences with friends.
2: So what are the kind of range of fitness classes you can do in the city nowadays?
0: Oh, just a huge number. I uh, recently did AquaCycle, which is uh, cycling inside a pool. So kind of like a spinning clasp in a swimming pool, which is as ridiculous as it sounds. There's also different levels of how vigorous you want your instructor to be. I mean, Barry's boot camp is notorious for being very, very difficult, but then some of the Pilates and yoga, are very much about the spiritual side of exercise and the idea that you just deserve to get back in touch with your body at the end of a long, hard-working
2: day. One of the gyms you went to has, uh, certainly has a novel way of exercising, including its name. Tell me about, if this is the name... Brun,
0: I think that's a good attempt. Um, so yes, <laughs> Brunn is a studio and the name is meant to be the sound you make when you're cold.
1: So We, uh, we spent a year developing this patent pending fridge that helps maintain a certain humidity which is safe for exercise. The type of HVAC system that we use, the type of humidification and dehumidification system that we use, how we pair that with an incredible lighting show, music
0: experience. So Bruin, the studio, is very much made for Instagram. You know, you can imagine people taking their fitness selfies in front of these luminous signs that they have on the wall. You walk in, you feel very welcome. I walked in, someone put flavoured caffeine powder into my water. And then there's this gigantic freezer basically and it's, it's actually not as cold as you said when I imagined it I thought you know it would be like exercising in a restaurant freezer or something. On the columns they look like they're lighting up from underneath a grate of
1: wood. Yeah. Right. yeah, We wanted to see we, so we had columns when we first built this space and you know both my co-founder Johnny and I thought well you know we've grown up in small towns I'm from Pennsylvania he's from Wisconsin and we've been to barns before And I just loved like that early morning light shining through the cracks of a barn door, and and so we're trying to recreate that with this experience to give it a little bit of.
2: And what kind of people did you meet there? What the regular exercise goers at Urn?
0: talking to Jimmy, he spoke about an audience that are very well off professionals people with busy working lives they probably travel a lot and appreciate the flexibility of a boutique studio where it's not that like you have to commit to the same class every week I think they obviously have to be fairly well off in order to afford such prices and Flatiron District, where a lot of these New York boutique studios are, which is where Braun is as well, is sandwiched between Midtown and Financial District, so it's accessible by subway. It's near some of the more expensive housing in New York, so these people either work or live nearby.
1: Being able to either finish that one rep or to be able to go without stopping is really important to our customers. They want to feel like they have a superhero cape on their back, and our workout environment does that.
0: So I did ask him whether people should be exercising outside for free if cold is so good for them. But this was, you know, a very nice experience. They do all different classes, some with these gigantic ropes pulling against the wall, some with these little slidey boards, which looks kind of fun, though I think I'd be very unstable on them. But after that, then you can go and heat up in the sauna. And again, that brings that luxurious experience into it as well. And you're here in the Flatiron District of New York where there's a huge
1: number of boutique exercise studios. There's literally 100 studios around us in Flatiron, yeah. So this is where all the sharks swim. Surely
0: that means that people are kind of picking and choosing in this cafeteria, as you called it, rather than coming back again and again and making a real sense of community?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for everybody. For example, ClassPass is a platform where people can date where they work out, right? So there's a lot of people who commit to variety and don't necessarily commit to a place.
0: ClassPass is an app. Um, it's like a Uber for exercise classes, except you still have to get up and go to them yourselves. But the, the point being that you can treat it all very casually. You can book different classes through an app. You can go to different studios each time. So it's really good for that kind of busy professional life but perhaps has caused some problems for studios. Studios do seem to be dropping out of it a little bit because, just like Groupon used to try and sell itself to businesses by saying once they tried they'll keep coming back and paying full price, I think in reality that didn't happen with a lot of class Pass users. They were gaming the system, and I must say I game the system a little bit
1: too. You know we are approachable with our prices and we try to encourage our customers to commit to us on a daily basis and not what just What is
0: approachable?
1: Um, prices that I mean it depends on you know so approachable to us is something that is not going to break the bank every single month for you. We have certain specs on who our customer is and what she makes and we see what other brands are charging, and we're a little bit under that. Um, and but,
0: I mean, people around here are charging a lot, right? We're talking oh, right. like $30, $40 a class. Yeah,
1: yeah. Again, I feel with New York, because there's so many options to choose from, people want to be able to know that you're walking to something that feels exclusive. I mean, why do people buy Gucci bags? And why do people pay certain prices for certain things? It's because you know what there's great quality that comes with that after the financial crash
3: in 2008, there was a rise in group fitness attendance.
0: So one of the people I spoke to was the academic Natalia Melman-Petrozella.
3: After the crash, a certain kind of conspicuous consumption became distasteful, especially when people are posting everything in their lives on social media to say, look at my fancy handbag or look at this fancy car vacation. It seems a little bit tacky. But to say Well, I went to this $40 spin class and I'm wearing my $100 leggings because we attach so many ideas about virtue and discipline and health and hard work. That's like I care about my health. You don't have to look too deeply into a lot of the boutique studios that have thrived in the last 10 years to realize what they're selling is very much a luxury experience. Tell me a little bit more about
2: Natalia.
0: Natalia is fantastic. She's a really interesting woman who's a historian, but also a massive gym bunny. And so she combined these interests and she's writing a book on the history of fitness. And I think she's really astute on how fitness is shaped by class and inequality and race and gender. You talk about the community. I suppose my experience of boutique fitness has been that it isn't necessarily that much of a community that everyone books online they switch up their schedule because you can and because it's more convenient if they're working busy jobs and you don't see the same people again and again
3: i think that is becoming more and more the fact in the last five years or so like 10 years ago people talked about SoulCycle, my tribe, my people, etc. Now, especially with something like SoulCycle where there's a class every hour and a studio every five blocks, I think that is changing in the way that you note. Other things that I think are affecting that, aggregators like ClassPass have fundamentally changed the nature of community and studio fitness. Made it more accessible because it's cheaper when you have those discounted rates, but they encourage the drop-in model. And so that has fundamentally changed if we're a culture which increasingly thinks that fitness is a right or is fundamental to leading a good life then it's time to make that a public good you know not only a public good i don't want to begrudge anyone who wants to take a 50 dollar tracy anderson class like by all means go for it if that's what you want to do but i think that we've hollowed out the notion of public commitment to that and a great that planet fitness costs whatever 15 dollars a month and that's fantastic but i think we can't just rely on
2: private markets to do that. So the cost is one thing obviously but there are other things as well that stop people in poor neighbourhoods getting fitter.
0: I think one of the biggest ones especially when you're thinking about being able to access free exercise facilities outdoors is safety right. If you're going to work out after dark you're going to be more at risk especially if you're a woman and you're not going to want to do it and so having brightly lit parks and also indoor facilities is really important
3: if you don't have either a private gym nearby or much more importantly, a safe place to go running or to play ball with your kids. I mean, that constrains your abilities to be physically active or to just go out for a run, which everyone loves to say is free, but is not freely available to everybody. I think if you work in unpredictable shift labor, it's very hard to plan for the week when you're going to be able to exercise. Similarly, if you don't have child care or health care so that you can be well enough to get into these spaces. Look, I don't want to pretend like boutique gym owners, particularly the small ones, are like these fat cats or thin cats, I should say, who um, are so rich and are making money hand over fist. They are not like the mom and pop ones. It is almost impossible to survive on a class to class basis. So they are small business owners and I get it. But the bigger ones, like the way they're perpetuating this idea that to be fit is a luxury item, and that what is this about? It's about exclusivity and hanging with the beautiful people and paying in to some elite club.
2: So away from these fancy gyms in Manhattan, we're going now to Brownsville, an area of Brooklyn. Tell us a little bit about the area there and what you found out.
0: So Brownsville is a little bit further out, harder to reach by the subway. It does border a couple of gentrifying neighbourhoods. Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights but it's very much not a gentrified neighbourhood. It has 28% of people there are living in poverty which is more than the average in New York City. One in seven people are unemployed and importantly for health outcomes the life expectancy is 75.1 years which is lower than the median of 81.2 for the whole of New York.
4: Having a fancy shower or having access to all this equipment still doesn't get to my healing. Fancy gyms for me is not essential for the work that Dion and I are trying to do. My name is Sheila Gordon, and I am the president and co-founder of We Run Brownsville.
5: And I'm Dion Grayman, and I am the co-founder of We Run Brownsville.
4: We don't see many black girls, or we didn't see many black women running as a collective and so we thought that was something that we wanted to tap into too we wanted to to create a safe space a place where we could heal and that was
2: ours so let's talk about running you spoke to these people we run brandsville what's their approach to exercise
0: This is a fantastic project, it's run by Dion and Sheila, who are these really inspiring best friends who grew up in Brownsville. And they really wanted to use exercise as a tool to do so much more for their communities.
5: On the track, during LAPS, we've learned that we've had women who have been victims of domestic violence. We learned that we've had women who have lost children to gun violence. We've learned that we've had women suffering from mental health issues that require medication. We learned that we have women who have overcome cancer, who are working through issues related to obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and the toll that stress places on the body. So the conditions that attend both poverty and racism, right? So the systems of oppression that run through every facet of our lives and how that impacts the black body in particular. So you name it, and it's on the track with us.
0: They turned up wearing these red sweaters with pictures of these very pouty, done-up lipsticks women, and they say whenever they run a 5K, they will put their lipstick on. And so that's only really the aim of the programme, is get people who have never run or not run that much to get into it and to get able to run a 5K. They run together in a local park, so they're trying to sort out some of the safety issues there by being a regular group together. And they also seem to have become a real part of the community and they have a relationship, for example, with community garden, and they start distributing fresh food from it. And they're really thinking very holistically.
5: The one outdoor park with a track in Brownsville had not been refurbished in like twenty years, and so the it track had to be longer than twenty over I'm twenty. Say. Yeah, so because was I 80s. was
4: it was like that when I used to run as okay. A kid. Wow. So uh, there were holes in the. In the grass fault, in the, in the actual turf of the, of the of track. Of the track. There were literal holes.
5: In so it. runners are taught to run looking up, and we had to run looking down so that we wouldn't hit the holes. But it was like a metaphor for our community, right? So here it is. We had this track that no other community would accept, right, to run on, and we were running on it. There hadn't been any city or state investment in the community, and so it was up
2: to us to, like, make the best of what we had. And so we
0: did that twice a week.
2: So how were they dealing with this lack of investment in Brownsville?
0: So they ran a campaign and they started bringing people in city government and politicians to run with them and see what the state of the track was.
4: We were using that track as a tool. Started to invite city official members out to come and run with us so you could see for yourself that we were running on a track that wasn't conducive to running.
5: And it wasn't only us, right? So right. Like, when we got to the track, there were people who were already running on the track. So that completely dispelled the myth that nobody used the track. That park was in active use. There's a narrative about the park. There's a narrative about the community, about how dangerous it is. And crime exists and violence persists. And the lived experience of myself as a second generation Brownsvillian, it's home and this external narrative about who we were and people believed us to be was just completely opposite of what was happening here you are you have this
4: group of women that we were sometimes 30 women running in the park then you attract media you attract all kinds of attention and we wanted to tell our story that way so that people know that this park was literally vibrant like Everybody
0: was it's very impressive how they've, they've come with not very many resources closed. and built something that is really making a difference in people's lives. Obviously, I think if they actually had more resources and there was maybe a little bit more top down help, then they could expand this faster. And maybe that's the lesson to learn.
2: I mean, it seems great from the community point of view. Is there any inkling that it's helping with health outcomes? Are the people getting healthier?
0: Yeah, definitely. Everyone was talking about people with particular problems, you know, losing weight, getting more control of their diabetes and blood pressure. And also there's a big emphasis on mental health. They really understand how physical health is linked to mental health. And there's obviously huge mental health problems, especially in poorer communities in New York. And when you were pushing for the track to be refurbished, was there something you particularly asked for? How did you want it to be there for the community?
4: we asked for a new track (laughs) we asked that the track be redone we knew that there was conversations around getting the track refurbished but it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and delayed so dion and i started asking to be invited to these meetings or to this conversation and having equity in parks all across like one park in one neighborhood shouldn't be 10 times better than the park in the
5: next neighborhood the neighborhoods that need the most, that have the greatest needs, like that's equity, and do what they can to make sure that they have what they need to match their more affluent neighbors. So that's one thing. So And the design of the park, is it accessible to all? What is the seating like? What is the lighting like? I'm a mom who was home with her children. What are the facilities like? Like, can I bring my child into a bathroom and change their diaper, right? If it's a nice day outside, can I sit outside and eat? Can I sit outside and read? Is the equipment in working order? Is it safe? Yeah, and just, is it accessible? And by safe, I don't, like, necessarily mean, like, physically safe, which is also important, but, like, is everything in good condition? Is everything repaired?
2: Okay, so we had two very different examples there, from the fancy gyms of Manhattan to the We Run Brownsville. What kind of lessons can we take that can be applied elsewhere from these two very different examples?
0: I think that they're both really about how exercise has to become more than mature and it has to become more than just doing it for these long-term health benefits, you know. And I think you see that with Bruin. It's a fun experience. It's something different to do. It's almost more exciting than going out to a new bar. And they talk a little bit about community there. But I think that We Run Brownsville is very focused on the idea of community. You're going not just because one day you want to make sure that you don't have incredibly high blood pressure. You're going because you want to see your friends and because you find it inspiring and you find it a pick-me-up when a lot of other things in your life could be difficult.
3: There's been this incredibly dynamic evolution in the private sector. The rise of boutique fitness with all of its permutations and all of its offerings being one key example. We have not seen that same kind of, I think, dynamism and innovation in the public sector, such that if you go to a community recreation center or you go to a phys ed class in your kind of everyday public school, you're not seeing a whole range of offerings. You're not seeing fitness framed as this fun thing, which everybody can do and which is foundational to selfhood in a really positive way. There's a lot of, I think, retrograde stuff going on in those spaces, which quite honestly are where most people encounter opportunities to be fit, much more so than these very elite realms. And so to me, I do see a lot of cool, innovative stuff along all the lines I just mentioned in boutique studios. But unfortunately, access to them is incredibly constricted to people who can pay to participate. I mean, there is a lot of exciting stuff being done in this boutique space that I think could be expanded and improved upon by connections with these other realms and centrally be made more inclusive
2: That's it for this episode of How to Build a Healthy City You can listen to our show for free on FT.com, Apple Podcasts, Acast or your podcatcher of choice And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate and review the show to read more from me and other journalists that you've heard in this FT special report series, visit ft.com reports. I'm Darren Dodd. Thanks for listening.
0: The FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk, a global healthcare company committed to defeating diabetes
6: trying to create an environment or framework where those early crazy ideas can flourish. Our job then in the pharmaceutical industry is to take those ideas and turn this into something tangible. My name is Markus Schindler and I'm Head of Global Drug Discovery at Novo Nordisk. So what really drives me is to do science with a purpose and really not just to gain knowledge, which I think is super important, but actually turn this into something useful, and in this case, obviously, medicines for patients. My team basically is a unit of roughly 800 scientists located around the world, and our main purpose is to discover new medicines for people with diabetes, cardiovascular disease and obesity and other serious chronic diseases. So from the first innovation, the process of ultimately coming up with a new medicine takes several years. We add another, I would say, six to eight years before a molecule can actually be brought to patients and be marketed and launched. And this is for the successful molecules, but our business is obviously one of innovation, so we also have a number of approaches that ultimately don't work, and we try to find that out as early as we can and trying to weed out the winners from the ones that will never ever make it is of crucial importance. I think the working environment in the pharmaceutical industry and for our scientists is changing on a daily basis as we require new capabilities and new technologies are being developed at a really breathtaking speed. The other piece that I think is worth mentioning is also how we work together and how we collaborate. Whereas in the past, I think many companies have worked a lot in silos and have tried to, each of us, tackle certain biological problems on our own. We see much more openness in what we call a pre-competitive space, where we simply need to understand some of the fundamentals, because it's important for all of us and it's important for the field in general. But the rethinking of drug discovery, I think, is happening as we speak. A number of elements have really helped us in this. One is a really much, much better understanding of human genetics. We're also building small, mini-organs of a liver, for example, or of a pancreas, which really models the human system rather than it being, you know, a mouse or a rat organ and then the third piece is ultimately computing power and artificial intelligence so how computers can help us to model quite complex systems for example how the organs in your body talk to each other and how they interact that has brought us a big step forward that in turn actually calls for what we ultimately will call personalised healthcare, which is a much more bespoke treatment for each patient or patient group. I think the role of the scientists is changing, but maybe more importantly the capabilities that are required today are changing. So apart from the more classical discipline, chemists and biologists and pharmacologists, we absolutely need more data scientists, bio or chemo informaticians people who ultimately are, I would say, data savvy in whatever they do. We also have a large number now of laboratory robots that actually help us to do a lot of repetitive work that previously people would have done manually. But now we need people who understand the laboratory robots and can program them and can supervise them and so forth. So I think it's a different kind of working that we see today in our laboratories and that no doubt will continue to change over the next couple of years. I think what I'm most excited about for the future is that we will have a much deeper understanding of the disease processes in human beings what causes disease, what drives disease and ultimately who is susceptible for some diseases and why other people are not. I think this deep understanding will really help us to make better medicines. I'm Lars Ruhrgaard Jorgensen, President and CEO of Novo Nordisk, a global healthcare company with more than 95 years of innovation and leadership in diabetes care. This heritage has given us experience and capabilities that also enable us to help people defeat other serious chronic diseases such as hemophilia, growth disorders, and obesity. Part of defeating diabetes means stopping people from getting the disease in the first place. That's why we have started Cities Changing Diabetes with the ambition of halting the rise in diabetes. You can find more at the website cdischangingdiabetes.com. Thanks for listening to the FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast, supported by one Nordisk.